Welcome to New Books in African Studies. I am Beke Okelina, your host. My guest today is Dr. Bonnie Ibao. He's a professor of history and global human rights at McMaster University. He studied in universities in Africa, the United States, and Canada. He was previously a human rights fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs, New York, and a research fellow at the Danish Institute for Human Rights in Copenhagen, Denmark. Today, we are going to be speaking about his new book, Human Rights in Africa. Dr. Ibao, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Uh, why not to begin by telling us a little bit about your research background? Uh, so I'm a historian of human rights, but my regional focus uh, is uh, Africa. But lately, I've also been interested in the global story of uh, human rights. So I'm um, uh, interested in where Africa fits in the global human rights stories. Uh, my interest also extends to legal history. So I have published in uh, the legal history of Africa. My last book was titled Imperial Justice, Africans in Empire's Court. Uh, I also published in the area of peace and conflict studies. So basically, it's, you know, legal history, international human rights history, and uh, peace and conflict studies generally. Okay, thank you. Uh, speaking about uh, human rights, let me begin with the very obvious question. What are human rights? Interesting one. I guess that's where every story about human rights starts. Uh, in some ways, it speaks to uh, the, the one of the motivations for this book, uh, really addressing that question, what are human rights? Um, well, I'll start with the conventional wisdom. What is what what has become the norm in the scholarship generally? Uh, so, and that is that human rights are rights that pertain to individuals simply by virtue of their humanity. So, these are the rights that you have as a human being. Uh, they are not contingent on your social status, on your race, on your gender, on your religion, on your class. It's it, they are rights that you have because you're a human being. And uh, these are distinguishable from other spectrum of rights, you know, property rights, uh, legal rights, uh, and so many other rights. And the conventional wisdom, at least in the scholarship, is that these were rights that came to be in the 21st century, uh, uh, basically because of the uh, Holocaust and uh, the the... The, sorry, in the 20th century, the, the Holocaust and the, uh, the, 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 the formation of the United Nations uh, and the whole movement to try and create some kind of legal uh, framework that would uh, protect the rights of all individuals. So specifically, the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, by the United Nations is typically seen as laying the foundation for what we now know as the contemporary human rights regime. Uh, but, but, but this is a very contested notion of human rights. So you will have uh, those who hold this very essentialist, particularistic view of what human rights are today, and, and others who take a more uh, a longer view of what human rights are and try to trace its origins back to the Enlightenment and all that. But, but to answer your question in a nutshell, when we talk about human rights today, uh, most scholars will be speaking about the post-Second World War international human rights regime inaugurated uh, by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 
Okay. And as you look at uh, human rights from uh, the long uh, durée, um, you you do in the book uh, context the fact that uh, they were not even invented in the Enlightenment period, uh, right? Um, or now where they invented uh, with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. So when did these actually emerge and how is Africa part of that story? Yeah, so this is essentially the trust of my book. Uh, in the past few years, uh, there has been an explosion of uh, interest in the history and the evolution of human rights as an idea and as a movement. Uh, but what I have noticed as an Africanist who works in this field is that Africa has largely been left out of the story. You know, when Africa is mentioned, it's often as a footnote in a larger story of the evolution of human rights. Uh, and so a key motivation for this book is trying to address that question, where does Africa fit in the global human rights story? And for me, this is a very important question because so much of the themes that converge on the question of uh, the development of human rights bear directly with Africa, whether you're talking about um, slavery and abolition, emancipation, uh, modernist uh, developmentalism, the colonial imposition, the civilizing mission, uh, contemporary constitutional human rights regime. All those themes have direct bearing to uh, the recent experiences of African peoples, and yet um, Africa really hasn't been given the kind of treatment that I think it deserves in the human rights story. So one of the motivations for this book really is to ask uh, how does Africa fit in? And my argument basically is that if you if you look at the evolution of human rights as idea, as discourse, and as a movement in Africa, uh, it you'll be hard pressed to begin the story either in the Enlightenment or in the 1940s, or even in the 1970s, as some scholars now argue as uh, the breakthrough moment in the evolution of human rights. Rather, I argue that the long durée history of human rights in Africa needs to go back, way back, uh, to traditions, you know, traditions and notions of human dignity, notions of morality, and then we can begin to trace where some of these traditions come in. Now, I do not attempt to make direct causal link between these early uh, notions of human dignity and contemporary iterations of human rights, but rather I argue that we cannot understand how things got the way they are today without understanding some of these more uh, historical uh, foundations for, for how human rights has evolved in Africa. One of the things also that you discussed in um, in the book, and you mentioned it, uh, you mentioned briefly um, as you were responding to my uh, to my last question, is the whole idea of human rights histories as histories of struggle. So you speak about you know uh, colonialism, slavery, and also neocolonialism, right? So um, how can we construct uh, these histories to fit within? Are these histories of struggle to fit within this framework of human rights? Yeah, so that is that is the central challenge. And much of the historiography has really turned on this question. So some of the leading scholars in the field have argued, for instance, and I would add rather persuasively, 
that uh, anti-colonialism, for instance, wasn't a human rights movement. Uh, it doesn't belong in the human rights story, uh, essentially because this was a movement that had to do with collective self-determination, whereas human rights, as they understand it, uh, has to do with uh, asserting individual liberties in relation to state power and state authority. So there's this very pedantic uh, distinction between uh, what human rights are as individual entitlements and what they are as, uh, as collective entitlements. And I really question this approach to the study of human rights because I argue that what that invariably means is that much of the stories of struggle, uh, whether you're talking about abolitionist struggle or you're talking about anti-colonial struggle, therefore get written out of the history of human rights. You know, uh, so for instance. Uh, all the early assertions of collective self-determination by African peoples in opposition to colonial uh, imposition and colonial conquest don't become struggles for human rights. They are rather something else. And, and I think that, that that is an approach that really excludes a huge chunk of the historical experiences of, of a particular people. So so my, my and, and I'm very careful about this, making this not a story about rereading history from a human rights lens. I, I try to think about what did these people think of their struggle? How did they articulate it? And in what ways is there a congruence? Do they intersect with human rights as we understand them today? But I'm also careful to stress how they were different uh, so in my discussion of um, uh, anti-slavery and abolitionism, for instance, I make it very clear that those assertions of liberties and freedom uh, were also circumscribed. They, they were not total. They were not universalists in the way that contemporary human rights have come to be. But I also say, in spite of the distinctions, there were underlying continuities, there were underlying connections. And those are the kind of connections that I want to highlight because I think they've been largely ignored in the historiography. But the collective is also very important for um, for Africans, right? So in Africa, we don't, uh, generally, broadly speaking, uh, we don't uh, speak so much about just simply uh, individual liberties, right? We speak about... Uh, um, communal, uh, communal life, right? Persons see themselves in yeah, relation yeah. to their, um, to their community. Don't you think it's a mistake for these uh, scholars who think of this communal uh, efforts um, as not being part of the human rights story? Yes, you would think so. And as an Africanist yourself, it's a no-brainer. I remember discussing some of these questions with a group of African Africanist scholars, and and they said, "Well, this is a no-brainer. We know that you know African traditions and notions of rights have an inherently uh, collective and communitarian dimension. So why does this point need to be made?" And I always remind them that, well, that's not the conventional wisdom in human rights scholarship. You have to understand that human rights, as it emerged uh, at the end of the Second World War, uh, emerged out of a crisis of nationalism in Europe. So after the Second World War and the Holocaust, the main concern of uh, the 
big powers that converged in San Francisco and later in New York uh, to draft the new international order, the UN Charter, and ultimately the UDHR, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Their primary concern was how do we constrain, how do we restrict the power of the state over the individual so that we do not have the kind of a nationalist crisis that led to the rise of Nazism in Germany, fascism in, 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 in Italy. Uh, how do we restrict the power of the state over the individual? That was the central question. It wasn't how do we dismantle colonialism in Africa and Asia. That was a very secondary question. And in many cases, we did not even feature in the human rights, in the early human rights debate. So if you look at the early discussion, and this has been very well documented, the emphasis was on the individual. In fact, some of the early definitions of human rights mm-hmm. uh, is that they are individual, uh, human rights are rights that pertain to individuals, emphasis on individuals, um, in relation to the state. And in some ways, that betrays the, the, the foundational motivation mm-hmm. for the post-war human rights movement. Now, I will admit that uh, over the years, over the decades, as the UN expanded, that notion of human rights came to be expanded. Uh, some human rights scholars will say it came to be usurped or hijacked. I, I, mm-hmm. I disagree with those characterizations of the evolutionary process. Mm-hmm. I say it came to be expanded to include uh, communal rights, the collective rights of people, uh, economic and social rights, solidarity rights, so-called third generation rights. And so the human rights uh, corpus or agenda, it's a lot broader than it was at its origin. But there's still this tendency to default uh, to particularist individualism or what I called in my book, atomized individualism as the very essence of what human rights are. And and that remains a very problematic approach to how we think of human rights. And so in telling the African human rights story or the story of Africa's place in the global human rights movement, it was very important for me to situate situate a particularist individualism or atomized individualism as a feature of a particular phase in the evolution of human rights as an idea and not its totalizing essence. And so I try to tease out how this idea of what human rights mm-hmm. means was progressively challenged as the UN expanded with decolonization, the UN became more representative of the peoples of the world. Uh, and so you had more voices from the global South saying, we want self-determination to be part of the international human rights movement. And, and so, we need to understand where these kind of uh, challenges came from and why they are integral to human rights as we understand them today. And I think, um, so uh, this notion of um, human rights uh, from a collective uh, perspective in uh, uh, in Africa, uh, it's a very important one. I think that's what Africa can also uh, teach the West. Um, but I also wonder... Um, what are the cases in which there might be a conflict between an individual's rights and the rights uh, or the collective uh, collective rights? And in those cases, uh, is it the individual individual's rights or the communal rights that take uh, precedence? Yes, very good question. So, questions about the conflict of rights—it's it's integral to 
human rights uh, as as an idea and put as a movement. So if you think about, you know, I mean, let's leave Africa for a moment. You think generally about the classic tension in, in human rights, uh, uh, free speech versus hate speech. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yes, on one hand, we talk about the free speech of everyone. It's a, it's a democratic right. But on the other hand, we also realize that free speech can also have um, devastating consequences for others. And so there's always this tension between free speech and, and, and discussions about hate speech. And so also it applies to this classic tension between uh, individual and collective rights. So I just said a few minutes ago that, that the foundational premise of the international human rights movement as it emerged in the post-World War era uh, was centered on, on individual rights. It has expanded to include collective rights. But as you would expect, that's always tension. I mean, which comes first, which uh, should be more foundational, uh, uh, and 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 there are those who would argue that the individual rights should be the foundational premise of human rights. If if it comes to a tension between collective cultural rights, for instance, to say this is the rights of the people as a collective, um, and and it comes to how do you balance that against the rights of individual? Uh, individual rights should come first. Now that is the view I would argue of many human rights scholars, of positivist human rights scholars. Uh, but, but I think that this is not a position that is shared by everyone. I mean, uh, in, in the context of Africa, for instance, uh, the argument has always been that we shouldn't assume that there is an absolute default, that the default should always be the individual. Uh, rather, the process sh- should always be contingent on context and strive towards negotiated settlement. So I'll give you a classic example uh, which I highlight in my book. Um, in the 1960s uh, up to the 1980s, uh, the African Union and, well, before it, the Organization of uh, African Unity, the OAU, um, had uh, a debate about uh, regional human rights documents. Uh, uh, and what came out was the African Charter on Human and People's Rights, uh, also known as the Banjul Charter. Mm-hmm. Now, if you read the African Charter, it is very different from, say, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, it has some very unique attributes. Uh, it does affirm universal human rights. It affirms individual rights but it equally affirms the collective rights of people. It does not position these rights as inherently contradictory or inherently intentional. In fact, the title of the African Charter is called the African Charter for Human and People's Rights. So people's is right there in the title. It talks about the rights of the collective, the right of uh, peoples to culture, uh, the right mm-hmm. of parents, uh, the right, uh, and also it emphasizes duties, so that's a whole new dimension of the rights regime that emerges in Africa. So to answer your question, yes, these tensions are there. Uh, they're not unique to the African experience. They're inherent in discussions about human rights and how to make human rights real in a complex world. Uh, but, but the discussion in Africa, uh, both at the theoretical level and the practical level, has been more about finding uh, synergies, balances, rather than assuming uh, that the individual always and every time comes uh, before uh, the community. Uh, there are cases where individual rights must prevail, 
uh, particularly where uh, it has to do uh, with uh, communal or collective traditions that are exclusionary, that marginalize people, that are patriarchal. Uh, but there are also times where communal uh, interests and communal rights uh, should get as much uh, or should get precedent over individual rights, and and we we see this when we talk about um, collective wealth, for instance, uh, uh, the collective rights to natural resources, uh, environmental rights. So you can say, well, one individual wants to. Uh, pollutes the environment because this is his piece of land. He has the property rights, the individual property rights. Well, if he is allowed to do that, then that ultimately affects uh, the health of everyone in the community. In cases like this, you can't make that very strict distinction between uh, individual rights and collective rights. And it is in that messy middle that I think the conversation needs to happen as to how we balance individual and collective rights. Okay, thank you. Um, I want to ask you about um, the idea of duties, obligations. But before that, um, you mentioned the document, um, uh, and the document puts uh, the word "peoples" in in the title. What is the importance of that? Yeah, the the, the emphasis on peoples in in the discussion leading up to the adoption of the African Charter on Human and Peoples' Rights was really a reaction to what was seen as the uh, at the time excessive individualist, uh, individual centered character of uh, international human rights documents. So, uh, starting from the nineteen 19- 60s, when many African countries became independent and uh, began to have a voice at the United Nations, uh, many African diplomats and statesmen, uh, from Nkrumah to Nyerere to Azikewe in Nigeria, really articulated collective rights as integral to the universal human rights movement. Um, If you look at some of the documents that came out uh, from the United Nations relating to rights in the 1960s and late 50s, uh, there was a push towards including collective rights more firmly into the human rights agenda. Uh, The Declaration on the Rights of uh, Colonized People, uh, the granting independence to colonized people, um, declarations against the crimes of apartheid, uh, the Declaration on the Right to Development, the Collective Right to Development, and many of, of the rights documents that came out of the United Nations really tended to push towards an expansion of the international human rights regime to more uh, to include a collective rights. So, in the discussions at Addis Ababa in Ethiopia, where the Africa Organization of African uh, Union was based. Uh, you, you, you saw that African leaders, in thinking through uh, a, a regional human rights document, were also very keen to have that stamp of uh, collective rights firmly in the document. So it wasn't just enough to call these uh, an African Charter of Human Rights, which, which they could have done. It was also important to, to assert from the very beginning that this was a document that, mm-hmm. that applied as much to the collective rights of people as it did uh, to the individual rights of, uh, of citizens. 
Thank you. Um, I was going, I said I was going to ask you um, about obligations because this is something you discuss in the book and you said that rights are also tied to obligations. So could you speak about the relationship between rights and duties within the African context? Yeah, so this again is another point of tension that in the scholarship. So like I said before, uh, human rights as it emerged uh, in 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 its uh, in the 1940s 1948 with the universal declaration of human rights international human rights i mean uh tended to be very particularistic about the individual um, now the classic definition is that human rights are rights that pertain to individuals simply by virtue of their humanity. So you have these rights not because you are a citizen, not because you are a man, you're a woman. You have this right because you are a human being. And this is what is revolutionary about the post-war human rights order. For the first time in human history, uh, the an international body of states was coming together to say, uh, People have rights just because they're human. They do not have to be citizens of any country. They, these rights pertain to them. And that was quite revolutionary, I would admit. I mean, if you look at previous discourses of rights, they were almost always contingent on membership of a society. You know, you think about um, constitutional rights, civil rights. Uh, these were rights that pertained to people because of their membership of a nation, of a society, ascribed status. Uh, but here you had the United Nations in the 1940s saying, well, here is a regime of rights that pertain to people just as humans, as humans. And so when you begin to say rights are tied to duties, there's an assumption that it challenges the very foundational premise of human rights. Uh, if you begin to say, well, your rights go with your duty to do this, then some scholars will argue that then they're no longer human rights because you're making these rights contingent on duties. Uh, you need to pay your taxes to have these rights. Uh, you need to be part of a communal organization to have these rights. Uh, and so there is, at least in some quarters, uh, very strong resistance to trying to link human rights to duties. Uh, in the African context, this has been challenged. And, and I think the way that the African human rights regime, and at least much of the discussion, intellectual discussion about human rights in Africa has proceeded, is to say, wait a minute, these two notions, the notion of one having inherent human rights and the notion of one also having some obligations to one's community, one's society, are not inherently in conflict. Uh, the one does not deny the other. There can be inherent rights, but those that are related to one's membership in society. And it's a very simple premise. Uh, if we say individuals have rights, it by implication means that someone has a duty to protect those rights. So rights are not an abstraction. So for instance, you say, well, citizens have rights. Well, the state has an obligation to protect those rights. In human rights language, we say the state mm -hmm. is the duty bearer. Now, if there are no states and maybe a person lives in a community, you say, well, I have rights within my village community. Uh, well, maybe the community has a duty to make sure that those rights mm -hmm. are protected. Now, what is your reciprocal obligation to the community that protects your right? And these are the kind of questions that uh, we're grappling with in the African context. So in this case, the emphasis here is that we can have a regime of duties. So the African Charter, for instance, talks about the duty of children to respect their parents. 
Now, you would typically not find that kind of injunction in a human rights document, but it is seen as foundational to protecting rights in the African context, that for every right, there is a duty. Mm -hmm. And so what is unique about the African human rights regime, at least as as, as it currently stands, is that duties are not seen as inherently contradictory to a notion of uh, of human rights. Rather, they are seen as complementary. Uh, the duties reinforce the obligations of communities to protect individual rights. And it is that attempt to balance duties and human rights that I think is really the major contribution of the African human rights system to the international human rights discourse. So if we use uh, the example of the duty of a child to respect their parents uh, or elders, if a child fails to respect the parents, does that child lose his or her human rights? Good question. So in, in, in the African Charter, for instance, there is the, the duty not just for children to respect their parents, but it actually says uh, to take care of them uh, when they're old, you know, at moments of need, uh, duties of citizens uh, to, you know, pay taxes and, and, and be loyal to the state and all that. Yeah, so it is silent. There is no, there is no uh, sanctions. The African Charter does not uh, ascribe sanctions. And I would say, as a human rights scholar and, and someone who works in the area of human rights, it would be ludicrous to think uh, that a child that does not respect the parents uh, ultimately loses their, their human rights. But I think it's a larger question. It's not so much uh, an assertion of the contingency of uh, children's rights um, to, their, to the obligations to respect, but it's more uh, a statement of the equal importance and relevance of duties in the African context. So it doesn't mean that if, if you do not pay your taxes or if you're not loyal to the nation or the community or if you do not you know, respect your parents, you lose your rights. Uh, but it's more that these are put there as an indication of the importance they have in the African context. Now, you have to recognize that this is a declaration. This is not a convention. This is not law. It's like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So the African Charter for Human and People's Rights is really a declaration of intent, like all declarations are. So it's a statement that it kind of outlines what the vision uh, of, of, of the states, the, the signatory states are. And, and, and so it's more a kind of declaratory document that, that outlines what the vision of rights should be in Africa. In very practical terms, it doesn't really mean that uh, these duties then take away from rights uh, when they're infringed. A distinction you made in your book, uh, which I thought was interesting, is uh, the distinction between human rights and humanitarianism. Uh, could you speak more about this distinction? Yeah, so uh, human rights, uh, humanitarianism and human rights, that distinction is one that also comes up, uh, particularly among scholars who, I, in my book, I call them the essentialist scholars, uh, the scholars who want a very particularistic interpretation of human rights. Uh, who say, well, what happened in 1948 with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was revolutionary. It was radical. It was unprecedented. And so we shouldn't conflate it uh, with uh, previous notions of uh, human dignity, 
of humanitarianism, um, and that if we if we if we do not make this distinction, then we model up the concept of human right, and that for them is conceptually problematic. I get where that argument is coming from, but as I argue in my book, I do not totally subscribe to it. So humanitarianism is falls within that argument of making distinction. Of course, that is not to say there are no hard distinctions. There are hard distinctions. But let me speak more about the historical distinctions. So, for instance, the argument is that anti-slavery or the abolitionist movement, that movement to free slaves in the 18th and 19th century, was really not a human rights movement. It was a humanitarian movement. Because abolitionists like Wilberforce, like uh, Thomas Claxton, and all these abolitionists in Africa and the New World and Europe who were arguing very persuasively for an end to slavery often did not think that these slaves would be of equal status as they were, you know, uh, didn't really envision a world where all human beings were equal as it later became with the UDHR. Rather, they were talking more about the need to treat these slaves with some respect, with God-given human dignity. And the discourse was very religious. It was one that was founded on notions of humanity, uh, empathy, and you know, giving liberty to those who they felt had been deprived of their liberty. And so that is a humanitarian endeavor, they would argue, uh, because it was meant to alleviate suffering, not to engender equality. And that these are two different things. Uh, if you think about contemporary events, people would say, well, what the Red Cross does and what Oxfam and all these NGOs that go into conflict zones, you know, medicines or frontier, uh, and they try to stop conflicts, as, as is happening in Syria, they're trying to save the children and provide uh, shelter and medical aid to those in areas of conflict. That is a humanitarian endeavor, and not strictly a human rights endeavor. But very quickly, you begin to see that this is a distinction without a difference, really, uh, because if you save uh, someone from slavery, you rescue them, and mm-hmm. you you are arguing that they deserve to be free, in some ways you are also speaking to a belief, a foundational belief that they have certain rights. Uh, And so the distinction that some movements tend towards humanitarian Mm -hmm. uh, intervention and others tend towards uh, a more assertive uh, invocation of human rights it's one that has some merit. And, and I buy that with the kind of examples I've just given. But, but I also argue, as I do in my book, is that we can't rigidly wall off the one from the other. Uh, very often when mm-hmm. movements like the anti-slavery movement, the anti-colonial movement, and even contemporary human rights NGO activism, uh, those people who are involved in these uh, activist movements on the ground and the ideas that inform them really do not have these very strict distinctions that scholars tend to make. And I argue for a more fluid approach, uh, emphasizing the humanitarian dimensions of these struggles and a more philosophical human rights dimension, but also recognizing that at their very core, 
they speak to human dignity and human emancipation, and that in some ways they are they are intrinsically connected. And uh, just um, to follow up on um, on that, in the book you you talked about uh, some of the Christian uh, converts that played a role in these um, anti-slavery. Uh, campaigns. One of them is the Nigerian bishop Samuel Ajayi uh, Crowder. How was he able, or some of these Christians, how were they able to link their anti-slavery uh, struggles, their activism with the notion of human rights? Yeah, so one of the things I try to book uh, in my book is again to begin to reinterpret some of these um, ideas and the role of Africans in the anti-slavery movement, the abolitionist movement, as human rights struggles. Uh, in, in the scholarship on anti-slavery and abolition, um, Africans play a very marginal role. Uh, if, you, if you look at the literature on, on anti-slavery, it's often, uh, it often emphasizes the role of the humanitarians and, and Christians in, in Europe and North America. Uh, where Africans are mentioned at all, it's often in the context of slave narratives, you know, the writings of um, Olaudai Keanu and, and other uh, liberated slaves who wrote in the West uh, and wrote in Europe and North America for, for, for audiences in those contexts. Uh, until very recently, uh, there hasn't been more at, much attention paid to the struggles of Africans within the continent um, to, to bring about both abolition and also uh, emancipation. And so one of the things I try to do is to bring some attention to the struggles of these um, these, these Africans. So to, to take the example you, you talk about, uh, Samuel Ajayi Crowder, here was uh, an African uh, who was sold into slavery um, and um, was liberated in the high seas uh, by the British anti-slavery naval squadrons in the age of abolition, uh, was repatriated uh, to West Africa, was converted, uh, became a Christian, uh, rose through the ranks to become the first Anglican uh, bishop, uh, African bishop uh, in, in, in Nigeria, and really took it upon himself uh, to fight uh, for emancipation. Of course, slavery had already been abolished uh, throughout the British Empire, but as every student of, uh, of, of, of slavery knows, uh, official and legal abolition did not automatically meet, mean the end of, of servitude and slavery uh, for a lot of uh, Africans. A lot of people still continue to live uh, under servitude and under slave-like uh, 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 institutions. So people like Ajayi were very instrumental in the process of emancipation, actually convincing tribal chiefs, convincing uh, slaveholders of the morality of, of, of slavery and why it was important to abandon this practice, however uh, old and ancient it may have been. And, and as I make, as I argue in my book, this brought them in conflict uh, with with those who benefited from these institutions of servitude within the continent. And, and, and I think their struggles uh, need to be framed as human rights struggles. I mean, I argue in my book that these were the first human rights activists in Africa, long before the age of uh, the NGOs. 
Uh, these were the non-governmental individuals, the NGIs, if you like, uh, who really took it upon themselves to, to, to argue for freedoms. And, and I think more importantly, they themselves articulated their efforts in terms of rights. Uh, in the case of Ajayi, he linked it with Christian humanism. He was an Anglican bishop. Uh, but he was also very clear that this was a question of liberty uh, and, and talked about the, the, the inherent value of liberty for women, uh, for those enslaved, and why culture must change. And they were a lot more effective because these were Africans who, had, who knew the culture, uh, who had the cultural legitimacy to make these claims. And so they were in a better position to actually do the difficult work on the ground of pushing emancipation and, and bringing liberty uh, to those who still lived under servitude. So slavery ends and basically we have a new um, system, which is colonialism, or people continue to live um, within uh, systems of servitude or uh, the colonial system itself, which is very uh, dehumanizing um, as well. In a book, you discuss three levels in which there is actually a link between uh, the colonial system and human rights. The first is the rationale for colonialism itself. Uh, The second is the level of human rights uh, violations by colonial governments. And the third is the demise of colonialism. Uh, Could you shed more light on these three? Yeah, so one of the uh, assumptions that I challenge in the book is this uh, notion that all good things go together. You know, that, that, that's something, uh, as human beings, we, we tend to believe that all good things go together. And I, in this case, I try to really disentangle them. So all good things in this case did not go together. So um, anti-slavery and the abolition of slavery was a good thing, a very good thing. Uh, it brought uh, freedom to a lot of people who... Uh, had been enslaved for centuries in in the New World and in in Africa. But it also went with colonialism, the end of political sovereignty for millions and millions of Africans. Uh, uh, Anti-slavery became the excuse for colonial conquest and domination in many parts of Africa. So here is a classic case where all good things did not go together. A good thing came with something horrible, and that was the loss of independence. And as I show in my book, the, 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 the end of slavery, the argument that these European powers were intervening in African societies to end the horrible trade in slaves became the excuse anyone could make for conquering indigenous people and asserting control over them. I give the classic example, and this is a well-documented example, of uh, King Leopold of Belgium, who persuades uh, his fellow monarchs in Europe uh, to give him personal rule. And this was rare, even for the time, uh, for a monarch to have been given personal rule over the Congo was uh, was was not that it hadn't happened before, but but even in the context of the scramble for Africa, this was a unique case. And and King Leopold ruled the Congo as a personal estate uh, with devastating consequence. Uh, some of the uh, grossest human rights violations in the history of Africa um, happened during this era. You know, uh, torture, uh, the cutting off of limbs. Uh, as punishment for not meeting uh, 
agricultural production quotas, and so many extreme human rights violations that have now been well documented. Uh, ultimately, King Leopold loses possession of, of the Congo, uh, but then Belgium takes over. It becomes a colonial Belgium. So in some ways, colonialism became the consequence of the end of slavery in many parts of Africa. It becomes an excuse. So I talk about human rights, uh, and this is why we must think about human rights not just as a movement, but also as discourse, as language. Uh, so I talk about human rights being an instrument, a weapon in the arsenal of European powers to colonize Africa. Uh, and I know this will sound kind of odd because we kind of think of human rights as something positive, something good, uh, something that brings liberation to people. But one of the things I try to emphasize in my book is that we should also think about the ways in which the language of human rights has historically been used, not just to liberate people, but to reinforce power and to reinforce systems of exclusion and domination. Uh, so we can't just say, well, human rights has been used to liberate. Well, it's also been used as an excuse for domination. The discourse of rights, the language of rights has been used. The legitimizing power of human rights language has been used mm -hmm. historically to dominate and insulate power. And we see this very clearly in, in, in the scramble for Africa. You know, you read some of the documents, the Berlin Act. Uh, there is an explicit reference to human rights, but there's reference to the civilizing mission. There's reference to the discourse of native rights. Uh, there's reference to uh, civilizing the natives as being the bounding obligation of uh, the civilized nations of Europe. And all this flowery language then becomes, in some ways, uh, a very powerful instrument for legitimizing domination, uh, going to civilize barbaric people and bringing to them a liberty. The emphasis on native rights. And, and, and I, I try to tease out what native rights meant in this context. Uh, it wasn't human rights. It wasn't the same rights as those of uh, the colonial overlords or the colonial masters. Uh, native rights were very particularistic rights uh, that could pertain to natives suited to their station in life. Uh, to their level of civilization. But it was rights nonetheless. It was couched in the language of rights. And so that was the first point, you know, right discourse as rational for empire. But then I talk about the violation of these rights. Now I'm shifting gears to talk about rights as actual action, you know, the kind of things we think about every day when we think about human rights, violations. And I talk about colonial violence, the systematic violations of human rights. Uh, but, but if you notice, I also talked about this not just in terms of violations uh, of African and native rights. I also talk about the windows of opportunities that colonial law and colonial liberal traditions brought to certain groups of Africans to enhance their human rights. And, and herein lies the great paradox of colonial human rights discourse that on the one hand, it was a very effective instrument for domination and political exploitation. But on the other hand, colonial liberal discourse as manifested in colonial laws uh, pertaining to women, uh, pertaining to marginalized minorities, could also be liberating. So I give the example in my book of African women who took up the advantage of colonial divorce laws to escape unwanted marriages, 
to escape patriarchal relations. And for these people, you can actually say that at least the colonial legal order provided opportunities for expanding rights. And that is also part of the colonial human rights story. Uh, but then ultimately, human rights features again in the era of decolonization. And, and again, we see a paradox of human rights discourse, that the same language of rights that legitimize the empire ultimately becomes a weapon invoked by African nationalists and emerging and articulate mm-hmm. African intelligentsia that people like Nkrumah, like Azikewe, like Giriri, like Leopold Senghor, uh, like Nelson Mandela, begin to use the same language of rights deployed to legitimize empire, to dismantle empire, to say, well, self-determination is a human right and we want to be free now. And so what I try to do is to tease out the nuances and complexities of how human rights worked, not just as an idea, but as discourse and a movement uh, at a crucial point in African colonial history. And yeah, going to that uh, that idea of um, civilizing uh, mission, uh, which was popularized by Jules Ferry, and when he speaks about rights and duties, right? He speaks about the rights of the higher races to colonize or civilize the the inferior races. And it sometimes comes across as if this is a benevolent uh, mission from the people of the higher higher races. But in your book, uh, you used... You actually use this term, and I really, really love this. I've never seen it elsewhere. You said the goal of the civilizing mission was that of making perfected uh, natives. Can you say something about perfected natives? Yeah, so this speaks to a point I made a moment ago, that, uh, and, and goes back to the point about the kind of rights that you know the, the colonists thought about that natives should have. Uh, the idea really here wasn't to extend the same rights that Europeans had uh, in the metropole to Africans in the colonies. That was never the intention. I mean, if that were the intention, it would abrogate the very essence of colonialism itself. The essence of colonialism was that there was a civilizational hierarchy, and it was the bounding obligation of those in the higher, you know, echelons of this hierarchy to help those at the lower rungs of the hierarchy. So, but the, the, the notion of, of, of the civilizing mission was to make the native the best he or she could be within the limits of their existence. Mm-hmm. And so the notion of the perfected native was that of a native who could maximize uh, uh, his or her God-given potentials within his or her station. And this was very important. So you read the, the, the writings of early ethnographies mm-hmm. like Mary Kinsley. This is very clear. And this, this is seen as very uh, progressive and very liberal. It is not that, uh, that the native should be oppressed. I mean, they're very sympathetic mm-hmm. to, 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 to the native in the sense that it's a kind of very paternalistic uh, approach to how they saw the native evolving. So the perfected native was one who kept much of his or her tradition, and, and, but, but was open, was kind of uh, tutored or, or trained uh, to abandon 
the more barbaric, uh, the more uncivilized, uh, and I use all these in context, these terms in context, uh, the more uncivilized aspects of, uh, of, of their tradition. And this is not mm-hmm. particular to Africa. Yeah. You find this discourse uh-huh. of the perfected native also in, in, in Asia, in India, and in parts of Latin America. Uh, so the perfected native was a native who had evolved, was still a native, uh, still not entitled to the full spectrum of rights that would avail the European in the metropole, uh, but an evolved native uh, mm-hmm. that 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 you know could operate within uh, the confines of the colonial civilization framework, uh, and and I think it's important to make this distinction because very often when you when you look at the, the literature and and and, and the discussion. There is an assumption that, well, the European agenda was to colonize, or Christianize, and Europeanize the African. And I think that's very simplistic. You know, there was, uh, there was really an agenda to totally Europeanize the African. You know, I think the agenda was more uh, to produce a more evolved native. Uh, because if you think about it, the the, 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 the the administrative and uh, political parameters of colonialism was to make the native suited for the new modernist states that the colonial regime was. So you didn't want the native to be totally foreign to his or her environment. You wanted the native to fit in, to, to operate within the confines of the environment, uh, but, but to be modern, to have enough of, of, of the values of modernity and civilization that, that they are able to operate effectively within the confines of this more modernist state uh, that, the, that the colonial uh, authorities sought to create across Africa. Uh, did the colonial authorities have any moral or legal rights uh, obligations toward the colonized? Yes, and that is a very interesting point. They were, in fact, legal rights, and and that is that is why I try to 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 uh, emphasize and make the distinction between moral obligation and legal rights. Because one of the critiques uh, that I have received in my attempts to portray uh, these histories as histories of rights and histories of uh, right struggle, is that you know, these were really moral considerations. These were ethical and moral discussions. They were not legal. They were not right discussions. And I know where that is coming from. Uh, for legal positivists, you really cannot talk about rights if they are not enforceable. You know, rights that cannot be enforced in the law court are no rights at all, I have been reminded uh, several times. Uh, but, but the argument really is rights go beyond law. You know, rights are prior law. But even if we take the definition of human rights as being, you know, in, in positivist legal terms, my argument was that there were legal obligations. And not only were there legal obligations, these legal obligations were invoked. So if you, if you look at the Berlin Act and its accompanying legal architecture, uh, that kind of framed the scramble for Africa, the Berlin-Africa Conference, uh, presided over by the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck in 1884. You look at the legal framework for that uh, that process, it spells out very, very clearly uh, what the legal obligation in international law, the legal obligations that... that um, the, the, the colonies had to the natives. In fact, one of the rationale for, for you know, 
taking the Congo away from the rulership of King Leopold was that he had contravened uh, his legal obligations to the natives. And the activists, the early activists, people like Edie Morel, these uh, European humanitarians who sought to bring the atrocities of early colonialists and so-called humanitarians to uh, the notice of audiences in, in Europe and uh, North America, one of the things they really harped on was the fact that these colonists had uh, you know, abrogated their legal obligations. They had contravened their, their legal obligations to the natives. Uh, that, that was the basis of their, their getting political control over a particular territory. So it, it wasn't uncommon for these um, uh, activists, uh, either it was Edie Morrell or organizations that came up later, like the Fabian Socialists in Britain, uh, the Socialist-Oriented League Against Imperialism, all these early uh, anti-colonial uh, actors, uh, you know, did emphasize that a basis for ending colonialism and, and the rule of the colonial rule uh, was the fact that the legal obligations of colonies had been breached in many cases. Uh, so it is not just a moral argument, although much of it is moral and ethical, but, but it was also a legal argument. And you also see this in, in particular, I think this is even more evident, where you begin to look at uh, the documents of the League of Nations, the trusteeship council, uh, after the end of the First and Second World War, certain parts of Africa were designated either League of Nations trusteeship, uh, uh, trusteeship uh, territories uh, handed over to the victorious uh, European countries, uh, Britain, uh, France mainly. Uh, and if you look at the way that the discussion about rights evolved in the context of, of trusteeship, uh, and you, you begin to see whether it is in the context of League of Nations mandated territories or United Nations trusteeship territories, that there is a legal framework, there's an international legal framework that is increasingly used by opponents of colonialism, both in Africa and in the metropole, to say that these colonial administrations are falling short of their rights obligations. Sometimes it's a language of welfare too, of their welfare obligations to the natives. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm very particularly particular about, you know, emphasizing that there's also a legal discourse here that goes in tandem with, with uh, an ethical and moral discourse. I want to ask you about um, African nationalists. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned some of them earlier, Namdi Azikiwe, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Julius um, Nyerere. And most of these uh, studied in in the West and some in the United States, uh, Azikiwe and Nkrumah studied uh, in the United States. And here they experienced both uh, segregation and it was also a time, the height of the new uh, Negro uh, movement and black consciousness. How did their experiences here in the West shape their own struggles for human rights in Africa? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because it's one that I think has been largely written out of the global human rights story. Uh, and one that I'm very keen to reinscribe into the global human rights story. So when, when, when certain scholars argue, for instance, that anti-colonialism wasn't a human rights movement, uh, one of the first things I tell them is say, then you, you don't, you haven't read the history of Julius Nyerere or Nandia Zikewe or Leopold Senghor or Kwame Nkrumah. You clearly haven't, uh, because these early 
African anti-colonial activists very, very clearly articulated their struggles as human rights. Uh, the fact that their narratives were not, um, uh, it, it, the fact that their voices are not were not presented at the United Nations, you know, does not mean that their absence of the story. One of the big problems of human of the global human rights scholarship, really, is that particularly the historical scholarship, has been fixated on metropolitan archives. So someone goes to the United Nations archives in New York, and that becomes the basis of a book Mm -hmm. about the history of colonialism and human rights. Uh, Well, that is going to be a very flawed history, because at the time, um, only three African countries were members of the United Nations. Many African countries were still under colonial rule. Anti-colonial voices, the Azikeways, the Ureres, uh, the Senghors, uh, had no voices at the United Nations. So you you can have a history of anti-colonialism and, hu- and human rights that ends with a discussion of the debates at the United Nations in France, from San Francisco and, and New York. You need to go beyond that. And that is what I try to do when I begin to excavate the ideas of people like Azikeway. So you give a classic example of Azikewe. So here was an African intellectual, you know, a young uh, Nigerian uh, nationalist who goes to study in the United States. Of course, at the time, he can only study in historically black universities. He goes to Lincoln University and Howard University. He actually teaches at Lincoln University for some time, gets his PhD, and his time at uh, his time in the United States provides a wonderful opportunity for him to interact uh, with uh, thriving black nationalist movement. Um, he, he he begins to build networks uh, with black activists uh, in the United States. He's invited to many historically black universities to give talks. He's even awarded. Uh, uh, an honorary degree, uh, doctorate degree in one of the historically black universities. So he's very much immersed in, in the black consciousness movement in the United States in the 1920s, uh, uh, 30s, and, and early 40s. Uh, he comes back to Nigeria, and the first thing he does is that he establishes a newspaper, two newspapers. One of them, the West African Pilot, becomes one of the widest selling uh, indigenous newspapers in the whole of West Africa, if not the whole of Africa at the time. And he's able to build on these uh, transatlantic networks to support his struggle for self-determination in, in, in West Africa, in, in Africa. Uh, and, and, and so you begin to see the parallels between the, 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 the black consciousness movement in the United States and the emerging uh, anti-colonial movement in, in Africa. Uh, in fact, Azikewe makes these connections very clear in his writings. You know, the oppression of the Negro in Harlem, he argues, is no different from the suppression of the man on the streets in Lagos. You know, he, he's, he's quick to make those connections. And he talks about why in the discussion about human rights, uh, black people, African people should focus more on articulating their own regime of rights rather than waiting for those at the United Nations 
who are too busy preparing their own documents. Those are his his actual words, uh, that it was time to begin to focus on creating an African-centered regime of rights because those who are debating at the United Nations, the imperial powers, Britain and France, are more interested in documents that will serve their own interests. And he actually goes on to do this. He develops a blueprint for Africa, a blueprint, he calls it a political blueprint for Nigeria, where he articulates a regime of rights that he says will be more relevant to an independent Nigerian state. So I think these transnational Uh, transatlantic connections uh, between the African intelligentsia who were very invested in anti-colonialism and framing it as a human rights movement and uh, the the emerging civil rights movement, uh, black nationalist movement at the time in the United States is one that has really not been explored uh, as much as it should and most certainly hasn't been framed in terms of a transatlantic uh, human rights uh, uh, movement. Thank you. Um, so you have these um, African uh, intellectual uh, nationalists, so they are pushing for uh, for human rights, self-determination, and then independence comes. And you argue in the book that independence did not bring about the promise of human rights, right? Um African political leaders who had framed their struggles in terms of human rights turned their backs on human rights or at least a cartel individual uh, civil liberties. And a classic example would be Kwame Nkrumah uh, in Ghana and the imprisonment of uh, Dan Kwar. Um, so I guess my question is really simple. Uh, what happened? Why? Yeah, that, 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 that's what makes this story so fascinating because it's not a simple story of the triumph of good over evil or the triumph of the oppressed over the oppressor. It's a more convoluted story where there are no clear winners, no clear oppressors, no clear victims. And frankly, that is the human rights story. You know, that is the, 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 and I'm very quick to stress that much of what I talk about in this book really, some of it is uniquely African. Uh, but as someone who studied, you know, the development of human rights in certain parts of the world, of course, not as detailed as I have done of Africa, I see parallels. And this is a global human rights story. So to go back to your question, so independence comes in. Uh, you know, one would expect that these nationalist activists who are so vigorously canvassed uh, self-determination as a human right would be the ambassadors of human rights, will be the ones uh, to instill, you know, uh, a new human rights order in Africa. Uh, but that is not what happens, you know. Uh, barely six years after independence, you begin to see the unraveling of many of the democratic uh, elected regimes that were established uh, in Africa, uh, from Nkrumah to Kenyatta to Azikiwe uh, in Nigeria. Uh, even in North Africa, you look at the, you know, Ben Bella and the re- regimes there. It's You begin to see that many of these regimes begin to develop, adopt the same uh, authoritarian tendencies that had they had so strongly criticized uh, on the colonial rule. And, and, and the simple question, the simple uh, way that uh, many scholars have sought to explain this was strictly in terms of the abandonment of human rights. Well, these leaders came in and they abandoned human rights. End of story. I try to push this a little bit further in my book. And I say, well, that, that, that's one layer of the story. 
The second layer of the story is who abandoned human rights and why? Because I think that's where you begin to get the complexity of the human rights discourse. Because yes, those who had assumed power, those who were triumphant in the struggle to succeed the colonial throne, to succeed the colonial masters, the Krumas, uh, the Zikiwis, and the uh, Senghors, and to some extent the Yeriris, um, you know, I think it would be simplistic to say they abandoned human rights. Uh, yes, many of them begin to adopt authoritarian tendencies, but they also begin to use the language of human rights to justify that, state sovereignty and the collective rights of peoples. So, for instance, Ukrumah begins to emphasize that, well, the rights that really count in the post-colonial states are the collective rights of the people. And I and the regime and my political party are the custodians of these collective rights of the peoples. So you begin to see that, yes, these are clearly an attempt to consolidate power. He begins, he begins to rule you know, in a way that suppresses the opposition. I give the example of Dankwa, who's promptly arrested uh, and, and detained. Uh, the use of repressive decrees. Uh, Zikiwe, who had been very opposed to colonial censorship laws uh, under colonial rule, becomes one of the strongest advocates for the need to curtail the excesses of the press. Uh, once he becomes the president of uh, Nigeria. And so, but the argument is always one of, well, we inherited very fragile states. And so for us to be able to build on these fragile geopolitical entities bequitted to us by colonialism, uh, we could ill afford the license of absolute individual rights. Rather, we need to prioritize collective rights, solidarity rights, and the state is going to be the custodian of these collective rights. I mean, this is so clear when you look at the politics of someone like Nyerere. I mean, Nyerere would not by any stretch of the imagination be called an African dictator, uh, even though uh, he did introduce African socialism. He was, as far as I'm concerned, one of the more enlightened post-colonial African leaders. But even he, in articulating African socialism and Ujama uh, and making Tanzania a one-party state, uh, use the argument of collective rights, that we need to come together as a people. We should emphasize the collective interests of our people and our collective welfare over the selfish individual rights of some political figures and opponents of the state. Of course, it is easy to see the duplicity and the self-serving nature of these kinds of arguments. But I think it's our job as historians to go beyond just, you know, what seems to be the big picture to try to excavate what the discourses were. I mean, that is not to say one agrees with them, but to understand what went wrong. But the other point that I make in my book is that this does not mean the end of the language of rights, because those who find themselves in political opposition are quick to marshal the arguments of individual rights to challenge the state's emphasis on collective rights. And so in what ha- in, in a very interesting development, post-colonial development, you see a classic conflict of rights playing out, mm-hmm. where the state becomes the custodian of collective rights. At the United Nations and at the African Union, and then the Organization of African Unity, uh, state representatives are emphasizing collective rights. That's how the word people gets into the African Charter, because diplomats are sent to Addis Ababa and New York and told to push collective mm-hmm. rights of people because that's the language that those in power want to emphasize. 
But within the various new states, there are position figures, Dankwa in Ghana, Chike Obi, the mathematician and politician in Nigeria, Odinga Odinga in Kenya, uh, Faret Abbas uh, in, uh, in North Africa, uh, Nigeria. All these opposition figures are beginning to say, no, wait a minute, this is not what we fought for. Uh, this is not what we envisioned. And they begin increasingly to use the language of individual rights, individual liberties, individual freedoms to challenge the state's arguments for collective solidarity and collective rights. And I think this is really the interesting story that we need to pay attention to, uh, because for so long, the discourse has been a very simplistic one. Well, African leaders came to power and they abandoned human rights. Uh, well, why? Well, because they're inherently evil. No, my argument is because because they serve their purpose. And the lighter story of human rights is that it has been historically selectively invoked to serve the geopolitical and personalist interests of invocators at different points in history. So I am by saying this is not a peculiar African story. So why did the European powers, European statesmen at the UN, why did they struggle so hard to exclude self-determination from the international human rights regime? Well, it's obvious, because if you included self-determination, how do they then justify colonial rule in the colonies? You undermine empire. You undermine their colonies. So it was in the interest of colonial statesmen, British and French statesmen in the United Nations to say, well, no, uh, self-determination is not really what we're thinking about when we talk about human rights. You know, strike that. And that's why, you know, someone like the wartime hero, Prime Minister Winston Churchill, would argue very persuasively to his constituents that Africans and other colonized people should not be included in the vision of the Atlantic Charter, which, you know, articulated British and American war aims as given freedom to, to people to choose the government by which they shall be ruled. He says, no, this does not extend to Africa and the colonies. I intend to hold the empire. I will not be the king's first minister to preside over the liquidation of the great British empire, he argues. And so you begin to see the duplicity, the historical duplicity of, of discussions about rights. Yeah. Uh, you see that again in the Cold War. The Soviet Union begins to emphasize economic and social rights. Uh, as, as, and then the United States it's, becomes the champion, particularly in the, in the, in the Qatar years of, of international human rights, narrowly defined as civil and political rights. It could care less about the other rights regimes, like the right to development, <laughs> uh, economic <laughs> rights, and all that. That is not important. What is important is elections, is the right to vote, uh, mm -hmm. But what about economic sovereignty? What about access to health? What about uh, access to housing? Well, that's also part of the international human rights regime, but the Americans are not interested in that uh, at that moment. So what I try to tease out is, yes, human rights language has been a liberating force a liberating force for the emancipation of millions of people. And that, that is not to take away from the inherent value of the vision of human rights. But we must also pay attention to the ways in which this very powerful and legitimizing language of rights had been, has been used by powerful actors and not so powerful actors to serve parochial uh, political, social, and economic agendas. And that is what you see with African leaders, at least most of them, in the period after colonial rule, because the legitimizing language of collective rights 
which at this point is also part of the international human rights discourse and movement, becomes, it is, it, is, it is conscripted, it is used, it is deployed and invoked as a way of legitimizing uh, state excesses, uh, consolidating power. Uh, in the same way that uh, opposition groups and marginalized groups also deploys part of that rights discourse to challenge state power. So it's a complex and interesting story. And my argument is for paying attention, not just to the language of rights, but who is invoking, when, and why. So human rights violations are still a major problem in Africa, from political prisoners uh, to laws in places like uh, Rwanda and, uh, and even not Rwanda, uh, Uganda, and even in uh, Nigeria, targeting LGBTQ uh, persons. Uh, what do you think is a way forward uh, for Africa in terms of the discourse and practice of human rights? Yeah, so my last chapter in this book is titled um, Old Causes, New Struggles, you know, where I kind of, you know, look at what is happening in Africa today. And, you know, as a historian, uh, I look at the big picture and I say, well, the more things change, the more they remain the same. A uh, lot of things <laughs> have changed. Yeah, that's that's my conclusion, basically. Uh, there has been progress. I mean, you look at the map of Africa today, there's a, there's a group called the, 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 that publishes, they develop uh, the Democracy Index. And you look at the map of Africa mm-hmm. today, there are more democracies than ever before, I mean, to what extent true democracy is being implemented is a question for debate, but at least in terms of uh, change, in terms the change leans towards more participatory uh, democracy. Uh, there is more consciousness of human rights. Everyone wants to position themselves, every government, as uh, as, as uh, you know, being alert to the human rights obligation. Uh, but so. In some ways, there's been progress. So uh, Africa has gone beyond the days of military coups and uh, incessant conflicts. There's still a number of them in the continent. But generally, I would say more people living in Africa today have their rights. Let me be more cautious about this. Let's say there are less violations, mass violations of human rights today than perhaps they've ever been in the history of the continent. And I say that guardedly, you know, just uh, two decades ago, West Africa, for instance, was, you know, rife with conflicts in Liberia, in Syria alone, in Chad, and and many parts of the uh, of the of the continent, uh, but today there's relative stability, at least in that part of Africa, and there is a sense that governance has to respond to the needs of the people. There's also an emerging architecture that seeks to promote human rights. Uh, the the recent case of um, a Sittite ruler in Gambia who. Uh, wanted to sit tight in power, and you know, it took the intervention of African countries in the rich subregion uh, to resolve that situation uh, relatively amicably. So you you see some level of progress, but having said that, there remains a, a number of challenges. The first challenge that I see as a scholar of human rights is that human rights is increasingly becoming a box you check. You know, uh, you just check it so you can legitimize your rule. 
uh, it's 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 lost. It's well, I wouldn't say it. It, it is. It, it, there's a threat that it might lose its legitimizing power and value. And the reason I say this is that human rights becomes an instrument, as it has historically been, but more so these days, for pushing very specific political agendas. So typically, we say human rights are indivisible. So if you believe in the framework of human rights, you should promote all human rights equally. But what we see increasingly is a very deliberate process of what I call political cherry-picking of rights. So I like these rights, but not that one. I'll promote these particular rights for these particular sets of people, but not those ones. And that in itself contravenes the very essence of human rights because they're integrated, they're indivisible. And this brings me to the question of LGBT rights. Uh, this is a very touchy issue you know in the whole of Africa, and, and I, I couldn't write a book about human rights in Africa without at least touching on this issue. And I do that in my final chapter. So the assumption really, and you hear this very often, political homophobia, LGBT rights are un-African, and states are actually making the efforts to institute laws uh, to further restrict the rights of LGBT people. In some ways, this goes back to the tension that we talked about earlier between individual rights and collective rights. So on the one hand, there is a collective right obligation here, you know, the cultural rights of the collective and the need to protect human, the, 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 the collective cultural values of the society. So there's a legitimate, there's a legitimate point that has to be made about the need to protect collective cultural rights and cultural values. But on the other hand, but when the state becomes complicit in marginalizing, targeting, excluding, threatening a particular group of people, it undermines the very essence of human rights. Uh, I'll give you an example. In the recent debates about bringing human rights into uh, bringing LGBTQ rights into the human rights framework, some of the most strongly opposed voices, some of the strongest opposition has come from African states. African countries are totally opposed to having LGBTQ rights included in international human rights protection. And as I say in my book, the key argument is that they are un-African, and two, they are natural. These are not natural rights. These are not God-given rights. Uh, and it's a family mm -hmm. argument. But interestingly, one of the most progressive countries in the world in terms of LGBTQ rights is also an African country, South Africa. In fact, two of the uh, most important uh, statements that have come out of the United Nations Human Rights Council on LGBTQ rights protection have been sponsored by South Africa. Of course, every other country in Africa voted against it. But it was not only sponsored by South Africa, but promoted by South Africa. And you've got to ask yourself why. Now, there might be many cultural and political reasons for this, but one of the reasons that I give is that South Africa, particularly after apartheid, came to reconstruct human rights as something that is indigenous. South Africa has been most progressive in the continent in trying to indigenize the human rights discourse. 
whether it's in terms of invoking Ubuntu as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process, whether it's in terms of developing what has been described as one of the most progressive constitutions in the world, there has been a clear attempt by the ruling ANC to indigenize human rights discourse. And so although there continues to be traditions and political cultures that are opposed to expanding human rights to more people in South Africa as elsewhere in the world, the attempts, the efforts, and the successes that that country has achieved in indigenizing human rights has made it relatively easier for its leaders to say, well, we can expand human rights to LGBTQ people without undermining our cultural values. And I think that is where the debate needs to go in the rest of Africa. Because if you think about it, and this is the point I make in my book, the history of human rights has been one of increasing expansion, a means opposition and efforts to restrict that human rights expansion. But every historical stage in the evolution of human rights, just as you want to expand it to more people, there's stiff opposition to expanding it. I mean, think about the abolitionist movement. Those who argued, no, you cannot free the slaves because if you free the slaves, you deny me of my property rights. So they're using the language of rights to oppose the expansion of rights to more people. Think about the anti-colonial movement. You have colonial, uh, colonial, anti-colonial activists in Africa saying, let's expand human rights from individual-centered rights to collective rights to self-determination. And what do you have in opposition? Statesmen, colonial statesmen from British and French colonial statements at the United Nations saying, no, we want to keep these individual rights. We're not going to expand it to self-determination. And what do you have with independence? Certain African leaders trying to restrict the definition of human rights to collective solidarity rights. And oppositional figures saying, no, we need to expand this to include individual rights of oppositional figures. Women saying, we need to expand the human rights framework uh, to challenge patriarchal customs and include women. And here you have a new phase in that discussion. Those arguing it is time to expand human rights to include protection, because that's what we're really asking for. Protection. The protection that the state provides, the protection that international, international law provides to LGBTQ people. It is time to do that, even in Africa. And then you have counter-movement, reactionary elements saying, no, let's keep this to what we already have, even narrow it further, uh, because these are natural rights. And that's why the more things change, the more they remain the same. And I have framed the LGBTQ rights struggle as the latest frontier in a historical trend, a trend in which there are impulses by marginalized people to expand rights protection to them and others like them, and counter-reactionary forces also deploying the language of rights aimed at restricting this expansion of rights protection. But what gives me hope is that when I look at the long durée of history, and African history in particular, the voices of expansion have always triumphed, sometimes at great costs, but the voices of expansion always triumph. And my hope is that a generation will come, and I already see signs of this, that we see the value of expanding the protection, 
and the security that comes from international human rights and domestic human rights to more and more people, because I think that it's integral to have a peaceful, stable, uh, and developed Africa countries. Thank you very much. Um, so my last question is, uh, what's the next project? Uh, what are you working on? Oh, yeah, great. So this is, uh, this is one that I had to think seriously about. So for much of my career, I have talked about human rights, and uh, human rights violation is often not a very pleasant topic uh, to, to talk about. You know, it's uh, difficult. You're talking about um, the sufferings of people, exclusion, marginalization, and, and sometimes the redemptive power of human rights in trying to make people's lives better. Uh, so having spent much of my career looking at human rights in Africa and in comparative contexts, I'm now shifting my focus to thinking through how societies have, solved, have sought to move beyond human rights violations to achieve peace in the aftermath of gross human rights violation. So I'm looking specifically at truth and reconciliation commissions in Africa. Uh, the... Of the more than 67 national truth and reconciliation commissions that have been established in the world, it is estimated that at least two-thirds have been in Africa, uh, from South Africa to Rwanda to Syria alone to Liberia to Ghana to Uganda. Uh, more and more African countries and countries around the world, you know, started off in Latin America, uh, are beginning to think about truth and reconciliation commissions as a way of dealing not just with historical injustices, but also contemporary human rights violations. In the case of Liberia and Syria alone, for instance, uh, TRCs were established in the aftermath of uh, the protracted civil wars in those countries. Um, even countries that have not experienced war, stable democracies like uh, you know, my adopted country of Canada recently uh, established uh, a truth and reconciliation commission to look into the historical injustices against the indigenous people. Uh, so it seems to me that the world is uh, expanding. You know, talk about human rights expansion. The world is beginning to expand uh, human rights accountability away from just war crimes tribunal. You know, think about Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal to begin to think about how to reconcile societies in the aftermath of gross human rights violations. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in this new institution. We've had a few in Africa. And for my next project, I want to look at what has happened with these uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. I mean, whose interests do they serve? So um, uh, it's going to be titled Confronting Atrocity, uh, Truth, Memory, and National Reconciliation. So I'm trying to look at uh, what what has this achieved? What is this institution that seems to be taking over the world? How effective has it been? And as I always do in my projects, I also want to find out whose interest does it serve? Uh, when the state establishes a truth and reconciliation commission, as was the case in Rwanda, Syria alone, and Liberia in the aftermath of war, mm -hmm. what is the purpose? Um, how much of this is driven by victim-centered justice? how much of this is driven by the state's desire to move on and create uh, a stable society that they can control, uh, how much of this is driven by the need to legitimize the regime that establishes the TRC. And so it's, it's about going to the TRC archives. Uh, there are quite a few of them in Africa now. And, and, and talking to those who went through the TRC process to see how effective this has been as a way of dealing 
with uh, historical injustices and human rights violations. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, as a historian, I'm interested in the past, but I'm also interested in what works. And, and, and if TRCs, uh, I know South Africa has really been studied. I'm not that South Africa is not going to be one of my case studies because I, I think enough has been done on that. But I'll be looking at the TRCs mm-hmm. in West Africa and hopefully comparing them with some in Latin America and try to see uh, what has worked and, and whose voices get told and, and what role are these new institutions playing in, in attempts to build stable, uh, peaceful societies, but also build societies uh, that are conscious of their past, of the histories of marginalization and exclusion uh, that are integral to their political and social experiences. The research sounds really fascinating. Hopefully you will come back on the podcast to talk about this project when it's uh, done and published. Yes, I'll be happy to do so. Yeah, so thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It was a very interesting um, um, interview. I learned a lot uh, about human rights uh, Human Rights in Africa. Um, Thanks for taking the time and coming on the podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. My guest again is uh, Dr. Bonnie Ibawo. He's he's the author of the new book, Human Rights in, in Africa. Thank you very much.